This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Kathy Meert. Dr. Meert is Chief of Critical Care at Children's Hospital of Michigan and Professor of Pediatrics at the Wayne State University School of Medicine. Kathy, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jeff. It's really an honor to be here and share about parental bereavement in the ICU. Um, Kathy, I think it's fair to say that in the last several decades, um, you more than anyone have done some of the most extensive research on the experience of bereaved families in the pediatric intensive care unit environment. And I wanna begin by asking you this, how should we think about bereavement well, let me start, um, Jeff, by maybe going over a few terms that are often used interchangeably, but really mean different things. So when we talk about bereavement, we're really talking about that objective situation of a, a parent having lost a child to death. Okay? And um, when I talk about, I'm going to talk about bereavement today, and when I do, it's, um, I'm going to talk about the entire experience as bereavement, that from anticipating the death, the death itself, and then that subsequent adjustment to living. And you know, bereavement is really a natural uh, human experience, a near universal human experience. And although it's difficult, most people do eventually adjust to their loss. Um, the other term that, that, that is used is grief, and grief is primarily that emotional reaction to the loss of a loved one, which again is primarily negative emotional reaction. And there can be wide variation uh, amongst individuals, of course. So, um, you know, for example, someone's grief might be more uh, manifested in terms of anger and abandonment, uh, and others maybe um, more in sorrow and yearning. So grief can vary much among individuals. When we talk about grief being abnormal or complicated or traumatic or prolonged, many different terms have been used in the literature. We're talking about grief that is more intense or of longer duration than is typically seen in the cultural norm. The other term that's commonly used is mourning, and that really is to do with the public display of grief. So those social expressions of grief that are often shaped by one's religious beliefs, practices, uh, and cultural practices. So, you know, Jeff, of course, the death of a child is a devastating experience for most parents and families. And, you know, there's many reasons for that. Some, some may be that there's this disruption in natural order when a child dies uh, before the parents. Um, parents um, may have feelings of failure. They may feel like they couldn't prevent the death or that um, they couldn't protect the child. And then there's also that interruption in family structure where the parents no longer have that familiar household, so they have to kind of reorganize um, their lives and their household to try to compensate for that lost child. So most people who have studied bereavement in different populations have found that the intensity and duration of grief is much more for individuals who have lost a child compared to individuals who have lost a spouse or a parent or a sibling or some other type of loss. 
And Kathy, what is known about the health outcomes of bereaved parents? Have, have there been formal studies of it? You know, there have. Um, in fact, bereaved parents are actually at higher risk of mortality from both natural and unnatural causes. Mm -hmm. And most of those studies are population-based studies that come from national registries from countries that have socialized medicine. But we know that um, mothers have a higher increase of mortality than fathers during bereavement. Um, parents of minor children have higher risk of mortality than parents of adult children who die. Um, parents whose children die of unnatural causes, such as homicide, suicide, or trauma, have a higher risk of mortality than other types of childhood deaths. And there's also thought to be a changing risk of parental mortality during bereavement um, over time. And that's a little controversial. Some literature would suggest that the risk for uh, mortality in the bereaved parent is highest early after the death and then subsides with time, whereas other research suggests that no, that's not the case, that parents are at higher risk of mortality and that it actually increases with time since the child's death. Um, parents also have um, uh, difficulties and struggle with physical health and psychological health during bereavement. So for example, um, the literature suggests there's a general decline in physical health um, among bereaved parents, and, and um, especially when parents are asked to self-rate their health. And parents' self-rated health during bereavement is lower than the health of parents who are not bereaved or the general population. There's an increase in physician visits to, um, during bereavement and um, increased sick days away from work, sleep problems. There's also people have studied risk for particular diseases during parental bereavement, such as cardiovascular disease, for example, uh, cancer. And the literature is conflicting here. So some studies, for example, that look at cardiovascular disease suggest that bereaved parents have a higher risk of uh, myocardial infarction, for example. But yet others would show that they, bereaved parents do not have a higher risk of stroke. Um, with cancer, some studies have shown bereaved parents have an increased risk of cancer, especially mothers where others have shown that, no, there's not an increased risk of cancer or death from cancer. Um, the same thing with immunologic disorders. So there is some controversy when, when, the, when uh, um, the investigators are looking at specific illnesses uh, during parental bereavement. There may be biological basis uh, for um, increased health problems during bereavement. You know, such a, such a crisis will affect the neuroendocrine system, the immune system, the cardiovascular system. And then, of course, there's also often an increase in risky behaviors among bereaved parents, such as poor diet, lack of exercise, or even drug or alcohol abuse that can contribute to poor physical health outcomes. Also, there's a general decrease in mental health among bereaved parents. Um, there's increased physician visits for mental health issues, and even an increase in first-time psychiatric hospitalizations among bereaved parents. Specific symptoms and conditions that are investigated are anxiety, a depression, post-traumatic stress symptoms and disorder, and, and complicated grief. Now, a complicated grief um, is a condition that's characterized by um, intense yearning and longing for that deceased person, for parents, for their child. And there's also a constellation of other symptoms that also could be characteristic of normal, normal grief, but feeling such a shock and disbelief over the loss, anger and bitterness, feeling that life has no purpose. Um, again, these symptoms may be normal early after a death, but when they're going on for a long time, six months or longer, we're getting into the areas of complicated grief. And these, when these, especially when these symptoms interfere with one's 
regular social, occupational, or family functioning. In a study conducted by the Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network, we wanted to look at this question of complicated grief among parents whose children die in the intensive care unit. And in research on complicated grief, it's been estimated that perhaps 10 to 20 percent of individuals in a community sample of bereaved people uh, would have symptoms consistent with complicated grief. But when we studied this in parents whose children die in the ICU, we found that 60% of parents had symptoms consistent with complicated grief six months after the death, and that these symptoms persisted in 40% of parents at 18 months after the death. So I, I'm not suggesting that parents necessarily have a pathologic condition, but it speaks to the intensity of grief that, that parents feel when they lose a child. On this next slide, I have a little schematic of the dual process model of coping with bereavement that's been proposed by Margaret Strobe and colleagues. And what it suggests is that a bereaved individual has to oscillate between confronting and avoiding stressors that are associated with the loss and stressors that are associated um, with restoration of life. And loss-oriented stressors are things that deal directly with the loss, like that intense yearning, longing for the child, thinking about the death, um, revising bonds with the child or that relationship with the child, because of course the parents are still the, the parents of the child, but now the relationship has changed because the child is deceased. Where restoration-oriented stressors are those things that have to do with ongoing life. For example, eventually the parent has to go back to work and take care of themselves and their other family members, for example. So it's, in order to cope in an adaptive way, it's thought that parents have to oscillate back and forth between confronting and avoiding the loss stressors and the restoration-oriented stressors. And when a bereaved person, a bereaved parent, focuses extremely um, on only one type of stressor, that this is when complications in the bereavement and grieving process can occur, keeping in mind that there are a wide range of normal. Uh, Dr. Muir, um, what does the evidence uh, teach us um, as to strategies that uh, we can utilize to help parents um, in the uh, process in the, in the intensive care unit environment? You know, um, Jeff, there really are scarce to know randomized controlled trials of interventions for bereaved parents in the intensive care unit. So when we're talking about evidence, we really are looking at descriptive data. And mostly these are descriptive studies um, that include parents who are telling us retrospectively um, what they think they needed at the time of their child's death in the intensive care unit. So there are quantitative studies, qualitative studies, mixed method studies. And in most cases, um, the investigators are trying to categorize and label and describe parents' needs through these types of studies uh, and then order to match them with certain types of support that could possibly deliver in the intensive care setting. So when I think about the types of needs and support for bereaved parents in the ICU setting, I think really in four categories. I think about first and most importantly is supporting the parental role and the parent-child relationship. Okay, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but um, also I think about the personal support. This is support that parents need from their family and their friends and their social networks. Professional support is the third category, which is that caring, sustaining kind of expert presence that's provided by nurses and doctors and social workers and chaplains and others in the ICU. And then environmental support, 
which has to do with the physical structure of the ICU and the ways in which it is used. So how do we go about supporting the parental role and the parent-child relationship around the time of death in the ICU? Before death, I think the, the, the way that, that parents desire or prefer for us to help them do that is to really help them participate in caregiving. You know, when a person, a, a child is in the ICU, you know, just imagine they have intubation, they have chest tubes, they have IVs, they're hooked up to monitors and machines, and the parents may even be even afraid to touch the child or even told that they can't touch the child. Sometimes even with infants, parents are at the point where they feel the baby doesn't even belong to them anymore, that it belongs, the baby belongs to the hospital or the nurses or the health professionals that are there at the bedside. So I think it's important that we, you know, we have to remember to tell parents that it's okay to hold the hand without the IV. It's okay to sing to your baby or talk to your baby. It's okay to bring in a special little pair of booties or something that make you uh, feel that you're participating in the care of this child. And in some cases, you know, if the nurses could allow the parent to help change a diaper or bathe the, bathe the child, these are extremely important to parents. They help parents create these lasting memories that stay with them forever, really. Um, and they really don't have much opportunity to do this. The other thing um, about supporting the parental role before the child's death has to do with respecting parental authority over the child. Sometimes parents feel they don't have any more authority. All the decisions are being made by the doctors and nurses and everybody else. So parents really need to be involved in that decision-making process. In order to do that, um, the health professionals really have to have good communication to uh, share information so that parents can participate. In one of our studies, parents told us that they feel their most um, difficult job or, or role in the ICU is to understand complex and uncertain information that's being given to them. So that really um, puts the job on us as health professionals to really make sure we're communicating properly with parents so that we can achieve those goals of shared decision-making and really doing what's in the best interest of the child. So I think before death, it's helping parents participate in caregiving and respecting their authority, particularly their decision-making authority. Now at the time of death, supporting the parent-child relationship really has to do with parental presence. Um, letting the parents be with their child, touching the child, holding the child, and having some time to say goodbye to that child. After death, again, it's allowing parental presence to be in, present with their child, grieve in the presence of their child's body. And as you know, um, in our ICUs, we provide keepsakes for parents. So um, we may give parents a lock of hair or a handprint or photographs of their child. And sometimes these are the only keepsakes or, or, or um, tangible things that parents have to remember their child. Sometimes parents will even want some unconventional things, like they'll want maybe the, the last uh, hospital gown their child wore, or they'll want the, the ID bracelet their, ch their child had on at the time of death. And I think as health professionals, we should do our best to accommodate with these kinds of keepsakes for parents. I'd like to turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. In your answer, could you first please state your city and country location? And the question is this, does your hospital or your intensive care unit have a regular or formal program where you provide to bereaved parents a memento or, or a keepsake, uh, such as a lock of hair after the death of their child? If so, would you be willing to share that uh, policy or procedure with colleagues around the world.
We're back now with Dr. Kathleen Merritt. Now, other uh, forms of support in the intensive care unit would be personal support and professional support. Personal support is that support from parents' individual relationships, their family members, their social networks. And, you know, sometimes uh, parents really want and need this type of support and these people to be around them. Other times, you know, staff really do help have to help um, the parents manage this flow of people in and out of the ICU. There are even times parents would prefer uh, privacy but don't know how to ask their family to give them that space to be alone with their dying child. So um, an important thing that health professionals, I think, can do is try to help parents understand what options they have around the time of their child's death and even help communicate some of those parental preferences to the other family members so that they can do things like give parents privacy if they want or also be present with the parents if that's what the parents prefer. Professional support is, I mentioned, that caring, sustaining expert presence. And parents have talked to us, too, about what that looks like. There are certain attributes of professional support that, that parents prefer. Um, compassion, uh, honest communication, trust, teamwork, and respect for the child's personhood. Compassion, as perceived by parents, is usually not in the big things, but in those very small things. It's a look that somebody gives them, or a word from a nurse or a doctor, or whether somebody offers them a chair or a glass of water. So we don't always need to worry about the big things. It's those very small moment-to-moment -moment things. Honest communication, of course, is very important. And this is communicating with parents in ways that do not have barriers that mislead or prevent full understanding. And parents caution, if you're going to give honest communication, honest information, especially when it's about a poor prognosis, that of course, it has to be delivered with compassion. Trust is very a very important attribute of professional support um, to parents. And trust can be hard. Uh, it's a little bit hard in the ICU because, as you know, uh, we're not the child's primary care providers much of the time. We're not the general pediatrician or that subspecialist that may have been taking care of them for years. So the child's now critically ill. They come to the ICU. They may be dying. And they're meeting us as health professionals for the first time. So we have to work hard to establish trust in a short time and in a crisis situation. And um, I think honest communication and compassion both help to build trust. Teamwork is another important attribute of professional support. Parents perceive teamwork really, I think, through their communication with the doctors and nurses and other health professionals. Parents need to know that we know what each other's doing, that one subspecialist um, knows what the other subspecialist is talking about. And, you know, we've heard sometimes from parents, really even extreme examples, where one physician will come in and, and tell the parent, you know, that the, a child is expected to recover, it's just going to take time and another physician from another service might come in and recommend withdrawal of life support. And sometimes that even happens um, between physicians on the same service, rotating on and off duty from the daytime to the nighttime shift. So doctors need to communicate with each other, and parents need to perceive that uh, we, even if we don't agree with each other, that we know what each other is thinking and talking about and doing. Respect for a child's personhood is another very important attribute of professional support. That has to do really with recognizing the critically ill child as human and as having social worth. And this is very important. And again, this is recognized through many small things, like do we refer to the child by name? Do we refer to the child with the proper gender when we're talking to families? 
So these are all very important attributes of professional support. Communication, as I mentioned, is very um, important to parents in the ICU. Some of the communication problems or issues that parents have talked about in a, in a research setting anyways is that need for physician availability and attentiveness. They see us running around the ICU and doing all these things, but they need us to stop and sit down and talk with them and, and really pay attention to their concerns. Uh, parents want honest and comprehensive information. They want information shared with appropriate affect. Are we kind and caring or are we rushed and uncaring? Withholding information is a problem, especially if it's information that deals with a poor prognosis. That could lead to anger, distrust, and false hopes among parents, an inability for them to plan. Complexity of vocabulary is often a problem among doctors. Um, parents would like us to speak in plain language uh, without medical jargon and words they can understand. Pace of our speech is important. Do we say things and um, take pauses and give people information um, as it becomes available? No one really wants to get a lecture at the end of the week. Parents would really rather have information as it becomes available and pieces um, where they can then ask questions about it and, and have time to think about it. Contradictory information, as I've already mentioned, is a problem for parents. Um, some parents prefer to get all their information from one person that they recognize as their one main doctor. Others uh, don't mind getting information from many different health professionals. Some may even prefer it. They might even like knowing different people's opinions. But in general, parents feel more confident when, when they feel that the different health professionals are talking to each other and they know what each other is thinking. Body language is also important. Do we as physicians and health professionals do we make eye contact when we're talking? Do we sit down? Or do we just sort of rush in and say a few things and run out of the room? Once again, I'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. In your response, please first leave your city and country location. And the question is this. In your ICU, what communication strategies do you believe are most helpful for parents at the end of their child's life? We're back now with Dr. Merritt. Now, environmental support is another type of support that is important for parents during their child's ICU stay and around the time of death. This has to do with the physical structure of the ICU and the way in, way in which it's used. So you know as an intensivist, Jeff, working in the ICU, it's a hectic and noisy place and people are running around and, and their ICUs are designed so that a child can be monitored and observed from almost anywhere where you're standing in the ICU. That's the kind of the goal of the thing. But at the time of a child's death, you know, many parents just need a sense of privacy and a creation of a more sacred or reverent atmosphere ar around that time. And um, nurses and staff and doctors can help to do that. Sometimes it's simple things. It's creating a, you know, a reverent atmosphere might just be closing the blinds to the room or shutting the door or making sure that the staff isn't standing outside of the room talking about what they did last weekend in loud voices while the child is dying in the room. And, and we don't mean to do it, we just have to be a little bit more aware. Time, uh, time in the ICU is different than time anyplace else, and parents need enough time. And you know, talking to many bereaved parents uh, in my clinical practice and in research, even in retrospect, most parents can't tell you how much time is enough time, how much time did I really need? But they can certainly tell you when they felt rushed. 
And then they're very frustrated and very sad, dissatisfied and feel that last moments were taken away from them. Facility support really has to do with having um, facilities for parents to be able to just take care of themselves a little bit during such a difficult time. I mean, we expect parents to be physically present with their child, to handle this crisis, to understand complex and uncertain information, to make decisions for their child. Um, they need to be able to take care of themselves. So that's simple things like having a bathroom nearby or, or a place to get some food or take a shower or a locker to keep some personal belongings. And also to be able, you know, an environment that can accommodate their families. Um, Kathy, um, you've just described a, a number of ways that we can support um, the parent of a dying child uh, in the hospital ICU environment, and it's been very comprehensive. But uh, I, I'm, I'm very interested to know, and I suspect colleagues are, so the moment of death arrives, and often it's the case that the parent might not be in the room. And as you and I both know, it is one of the most difficult things we have to do to walk up to a mother or father and tell them that their child has died. Many years ago, I was taught that uh, the two principles are you can't belabor it because they know what's coming and you're almost uh, drawing out their pain if you go on and on and on and then finally get to the conveyance of death. And so I was taught you've got to be relatively direct. And I was also taught that you should never use the word dead. I'm sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, your child's dead. I was taught, I'm very sorry, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, that I must tell you that your daughter has died. Mm -hmm. That somehow died was a word that was less harsh than dead. Mm -hmm. Is there any literature on breaking bad news in this context at this moment um, or in your experience, what, what do you recommend? How, how do you convey to a parent the death of their child? Well, I think um, some of the general principles that I just talked about with compassion um, and with kindness and with caring and with honest information is really what's important. And that gets to your point about not belaboring the point. Because it, it, if you have something to say that's so serious, that your child has died, you need to say that, and you're going to have to expect an emotional reaction. Um, even if the child's been sick and, and the parents know it's coming. Um, and then, after that, let that emotional reaction take place. The parents often will be able to then listen a little bit, and you can explain, if you want, there's things to explain, or you want to say what happened. Um, it's almost sometimes like waves, waves of grief. So they've heard the fact that their child has died, um, there's a wave of grief, then sort of a, a break, and you can explain a little bit of information. Then maybe another wave of grief, and then slows down. You can explain a little bit of information. So you just have to go through this. But I wouldn't give long explanations about everything, and then at the end, and your child died. Um, because that's, that's the most important thing they're ever going to hear, that, that, that they've heard, that they're going to hear, and they need to hear that first, right? Um, as far as using the word um, died or dead, um, I don't know, Jeff, if really one should never say the word dead. But I, what I would say is to, to use the word died or dead rather than um, no longer with us, passed away, 
Uh, parent, if you say no longer with us, the child might think he went for a test. You know, we, we do need to be clear. Every now and then a parent will say, don't say died, say passed away. Okay, that's okay if the parents have told me to say that. But when I'm talking to parents, I, I want to make sure they understand. And this is such a time of crisis that they may not understand really um, if you don't use the words. Um, Dr. Mir, um, what do we know from uh, your research or the research of others about programs to support families after the death of their child? Well, you, of course, there's many types of informal support um, from nurses and staff and physicians um, that are really, the literature would say, are, are deeply appreciated by parents. Um, things such as sending a sympathy card, um, an email, a phone call, making a visit at a funeral home uh, or a memorial service. These kind of, I refer to them as informal acts of kindness and commemoration are so deeply appreciated by most parents. Um, there are also formal types of follow-up. So one of the things the Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network has done is investigated in a series of studies how we could develop a framework for physicians for conducting follow-up meetings with parents after a child's death. You know, Jeff, after a child dies, a little time goes by, a lot of times parents have a need for information. They have questions. They have a need also to reconnect with the people that they knew at the hospital because they've developed these kind of intense relationships and they've shared the experience of the child's death. And then it's happened and they go home and they, they don't see those health professionals again. They don't have a reason to come to the ICU unless they're invited. So that um, formal follow-up meeting can provide emotional support in the form of reconnection and also in the form of reassurance. Parents, as they're thinking about things later on, often need reassurance. Mostly they want to be reassured about whether the best decisions were made for their child and also whether you know, the best care, their child really received the best care that was in their child's best interest. So information, um, that type of emotional support of reconnection and reassurance. And also parents um, often not only have questions but also want to provide feedback and sometimes, sometimes it's not feedback physicians might want to hear, but most of the time it is. It's expressions of gratitude that we've taken care of their child. So these kinds of things can be done in a formal follow-up meeting, which um, most often we would conduct whenever the parent wants it. But most typically, most parents say it's within the first, say, three months after the death of the child. And most parents really will come back to the hospital to participate in that if they want to do it. Not all parents want to do it, but what I'm saying is that those who want to do it are usually willing to come back to the hospital to do it. I wonder if I could turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. In your answer, could you please state your city and country location? The question is this, does your hospital or ICU have a formal parent bereavement follow-up meeting? And if so, typically how long after the death of a child does this bereavement follow-up meeting occur? And finally, what percentage of bereaved parents who are offered uh, such a follow-up meeting uh, participate um, and actually come in to your hospital or have a meeting formally with the physicians after the death of their child? We're back now with Dr. Kathy Mert. So what did we find from our research on follow-up meetings is that, you know, we've interviewed many parents, first of all, and many physicians around the United States to 
um, kind of get their perspectives on what a follow-up meeting ought to look like, because of course, parents and physicians are the key stakeholders of these meetings. Um, and we designed a framework that's not meant to be like a script that you would follow, like this is what you say during a follow-up meeting, but more like a flexible guideline that we could use with many different types of families, different types of death situations in the ICU. And we based our framework also on not just the input of physicians and parents, but also literature, current literature on communication, and interdisciplinary expertise, which we felt was very, very important designing an intervention like this. Most physicians have told us that, you know, they're willing to conduct a follow-up meeting as long as somebody else can arrange it all. So that's a very important part of our framework is that there's some type of institutional system or person that will actually invite the parents, invite the health professionals that are going to be involved, arrange the time, arrange the meeting, and set everything up so that the physician can come and then meet with the family. And when I say parent-physician follow-up meeting, I don't mean to exclude other types of health professionals. I do think that the phys physician needs to be there. They're sort of seen as the leader of the team in the intensive care unit. Um, parents often want other people to come, and physicians often want other people to come too. So in our framework, that person who is responsible for calling parents and scheduling the meeting, we also ask that person to kind of assess parents' preferences for, for the meeting while they're scheduling the meeting. So these are things like, um, who would the parents like to bring from their family or their community to the meeting? It's nice to know ahead of time. Are they going to bring their own parents or a clergy member or, or another friend um, so you can accommodate the, the people? Um, we also ask the parents, is there someone else from the hospital besides the ICU doctor that you would like to have at this follow-up meeting? And, and often there are. Parents most often would want the beds, one of their bedside nurses to come. They're bonded with the bedside nurse who's, who's been there. And, and nurses um, usually, well, they'll do their very best to accommodate something like this because they too are bonded to these parents. Um, physicians often want um, someone like a chaplain or a social worker or someone the physician perceives as able to provide that emotional support. Sometimes a physician will want at the meeting another subspecialist, if it were a child maybe with a complex illness and the subspecialist has been involved for a long time, or maybe even the child's primary care pediatrician. So we invite all of these individuals, and um, people do their best to accommodate. Of course, not there's can't make any promises to the parents, but we tell them, if, if, if you want one of your bedside nurses to be there, we'll, we'll do our best to see if that can happen. When we're scheduled the meeting and assessing these um, parent preferences, we do ask parents too, is, if they know, is there some one burning question you have or some really important topic that you want to talk about? Because it can also help the health professionals prepare a little bit for the meeting. Um, for the health professionals, um, they're asked to review the medical records and the family psychosocial history uh, before the meeting so they can prepare themselves. And sometimes, especially if it's a very complex case with a lot of people involved, we like the health professionals to even have a little pre-meeting amongst themselves, even if it's brief, just so that there's no confusion and they're not providing conflicting information, that they're kind of all on the same page so that they know they're, they're meeting with the family and kind of know who's going to lead the meeting and uh, what, dis what kinds of things they plan to discuss. Now, when opening the meeting, it's important, of course, to welcome the family. Usually, we'll meet the family in the lobby of the hospital and walk them up to the meeting room and 
And although we meet at the hospital because that's often the safest place, there's other people around if, if you need help, um, but we meet away from the ICU. So either a, an office, if there's a big enough office space or a conference room that's away from the ICU. We welcome the family. It's important to express condolences and, and recognize that even the meeting is a sad time and a special time in the family's life. It's important to make introductions too because the physician uh, leading the meeting might not know the different family members or remember who the parents are bringing. And the parents might not remember our names and feel a little embarrassed, although they might, uh, um, they, they particularly wanted maybe this certain sort of specialist there, um, but may not remember their name. So it's important to make those introductions and help kind of break the ice a little bit. Now, when we conduct follow-up meetings, we really like for the parents to be the ones to set the agenda, if at all possible, because it's for them. We want to answer their questions and try to meet their needs. Sometimes, though, you know, to start a meeting like that, it's a little hard. The parents are, they're just sad, they're scared, they're, you know, coming back to the place where their child died. So if that happens and, and, and it seems a little difficult to get started, um, physicians can, can give a kind of an offer, at least, to give a brief overview of the child's course. So, for example, well, to get started, I really, you know, I really want to answer any questions you have, but maybe it would help if I give a little brief overview of of your child's course, what, what it was like when he came, what brought him to the ICU, and what were the events that happened there. And um, I will uh, encourage the parents to stop me at any time, and then we can discuss anything along the way. Now, some parents don't need that because they come with, they know what their burning questions are and can't wait to get to the room to ask them, but sometimes they need a little help, and kind of giving that overview is sometimes helpful to parents to get started. It's important for the physician and other health professionals to realize they're going to have to give a balance of information, emotional support, and opportunity uh, for the parents to give feedback. We have to really be comfortable with pauses. We have to allow parents to ask questions and really listen to their questions and answer the questions. And sometimes we don't, we don't, might not have all the answers, okay? but we have to listen to them and answer and explain as best as we can. And then you know, leave a little time for that reconnection and, and, and reassurance that the best decisions were made. Um, we don't want to give false reassurance, of course, but, but reassure um, that really their child did receive the best care and that they, the parents themselves made the best decisions that they could in this, during the social circumstances. It's important, again, to communicate effectively during follow-up meetings. So many of the things I've already mentioned, especially to demonstrate compassion and honesty some things I think not to do that physicians are really good at is lecturing, giving huge pieces of information and with no pauses, no chance for questions, like I'm lecturing to you right now. Um, but really parents would rather have, you know, give a little information, um, have a pause or ask if there's any questions and then give a little bit more information. Um, another thing we're good at is redirecting the conversation. So if a parent comes up with something that, oh, this is really uncomfortable and I don't want to talk about it, we're pretty good at redirecting the conversation. So we don't want to do that. We want to be able to face their questions and give them the chance to say the things they want to say. Um, and then the other thing is we don't want to provide premature reassurance. We want to reassure, but we want to make sure that we really listen to their concern. So rather than a parent says something and we're like, oh, don't worry about that. My doctors are really well, very qualified. It, it, it would be, I think, a little better to say, um, well, tell me what is your concern about that? What do you remember? You know, what do you think happened? Okay, And then to take it on from there. So 
honest communication, showing compassion, don't redirect when you don't like, don't block the conversation, um, don't provide reassurance prematurely, and don't lecture. Um, closing the meeting can be a little difficult because you know you're all realizing that might be your last interaction together and, and you've had shared this this very important time. Physicians can kind of summarize the discussion, ask if there's any further questions. Um, sometimes we'll provide parents with documents um, that uh, they may have requested if we know they want them. So for example, a parent might want a copy of an autopsy report that we reviewed with them and we'd want to have that for them in closing the meeting. Um, other times, um, parents might ask us for referrals um, for bereavement support or uh, you know, maybe they need some subspecialist referral for another child in their family. So it's, it's um, good to be able to do that at the close of a meeting, especially bereavement referrals. If there's a social worker with us, can sometimes make those types of recommendations to families. And we walk the families to the door so, so that when they leave, and then after that, um, we recommend sending parents a thank you card for coming to the follow-up meeting because it just recognizes that this is a really difficult thing you did. You know, you came to talk to the doctors and, and ask us questions and give us feedback on your experiences, and we thank them for doing that. Um, sometimes there's unfinished tasks. Parents might ask for a piece of information that we just don't have at the time of the meeting, and we can follow up with them after the meeting. Um, and the other thing I think it's important for the physicians and health professionals after meeting with parents like this is to just take a little time and debrief amongst themselves about how do they think it went and what would they do differently, especially if you have trainees that you invite to come to the meeting. And I would recommend that because if you have medical students or residents or fellows, um, this is how they'll learn how to talk and share with families. And even if they maybe didn't take part in that child's care because they're rotating on and off service and the parents are coming back a few months later, they can still learn from how the health professionals are, are sharing with the family. So debriefing with them is important as well. So after our research network you know, developed this framework for follow-up meetings, we thought we should test it, at least the feasibility of it. So we conducted follow-up meetings with bereaved parents, and we videotaped them. And we had 30, 36 follow-up meetings that we videotaped between physicians and other health professionals and bereaved parents. And um, then we studied the videotapes um, and did a little bit of follow-up with the parents and the physicians that were involved. And the, um, studying, in studying the videotapes, we found that the physicians and health professionals, they really did comply with the framework pretty well and demonstrate behaviors that were consistent with the framework in really a very high quality fashion. So it wasn't something that doctors couldn't do. They could certainly do this. And when we followed up with the physicians later on and with the families, um, I think 92% of the family members that, that did the follow-up after the meeting um, found that the meeting was helpful to them. And about 89% found out or, or told us that the meeting was also helpful to the people they brought with them. Among the physicians, 92% of the physicians told us that they thought the meeting was helpful to the family, and 89% of the physicians thought the meeting was helpful to them. So although we don't have a randomized controlled trial saying follow-up meetings are the things to do, and I don't think they're the do, thing to do for everybody, but for those parents who would want them, they seem to be helpful. So again, I think in end-of-life and bereavement care, offering parent options is very important. Now, when we asked parents about our follow-up meetings, we asked them when would be the best time to receive some type of follow-up. And some parents said, right now. 
some parents said a year after. Um, most parents seem to want that contact with the staff um, sometime in the first three months after the death. So when we do our follow-up meetings, we wait about a month, um, and we send out an invitation, and then we plan from there. And we have to be very open with the parents. Um, as far as sending you know, sympathy cards or phone calls or emails, I think, again, that really depends on that individual relationship between that health professional and, and the parents. Um, but that can, um, I, I would say, any time within the first three months, probably, but even later on. But most parents, if they can say, they would say they're looking for that reconnection in the first few months. And um, Dr. Mert, your, your concluding thoughts on um, what we should understand um, about the care and support of a bereaved parent? Well, I think we have to just first realize that parental bereavement is really a very devastating experience, and it does place parents at risk for adverse health outcomes. Um, we can do some things to support parents in the ICU. Bereavement support in the ICU would include um, supporting the parental role and the parent-child relationship. This can be accomplished through various forms of personal, professional, and environmental support. Bereavement support after a child's death in the ICU includes information and emotional support and can be accomplished through these informal acts of kindness and commemoration, as well as formal follow-up meetings and even other types of professional referrals when needed. Dr. Kathy Mert, thank you for being with us today. Um, I think I speak for colleagues around the world when I say um, you and your extensive research over decades has helped us better understand and better support brief parents because of the work that you've done. So thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.